Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian and independent researcher. On today's podcast, we will explore the issues of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, COP26, the climate emergency, and the policies of climate change like the net zero transition. My guest is Donna Laframboise, Canadian journalist, past vice president of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, author of the amazing blog nofrackingconsensus.com, and author of the revealing and excellent book, The Delinquent Teenager Who Was Mistaken for the World's Top Climate Expert. Thank you so much for joining me today, Donna. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, for those who may not have heard of your work, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself besides my, my brief little intro? Well, I um, have been a journalist for, for many years, and um, when I was working for newspapers and magazines here in Canada, I uh, tended to do those really tough uh, research projects that took a lot of time, and you actually had to go and read hundreds of pages of, of, of government documents. Um, so, you know, I specialized in investigative work that really um, demanded an investment of time that most journalists simply don't have. Um, and I also um, specialized in, you know, digging below the surface. So there, there is a surface understanding of many issues, um, the environmental landscape being one of them. And then there is, you know, often we, this is pretty normal for in any kind of situation, we find that, you know, we have the surface story and then we look underneath and things are are more complicated and and are often surprising there are things there that we just um, didn't anticipate so I've always been one of those journalists who is very interested in kind of understanding the big picture the whole story trying to get a sense of different perspectives before I would make a uh, you know before I would start to frame the story in a particular direction I really really wanted to educate myself so that I didn't look like an idiot and um uh, when, when the, when the, when the piece finally came out. And I also have, because I was doing investigative work, I have a history from my very first magazine story of, of um, being very, very careful because as a journalist doing that kind of work, you have to worry about being sued. If you are bringing forward information that the powers that be, um, don't, don't necessarily, uh, want to hear or aren't comfort, comfortable with, you You can be sued. You have to be very careful about libel. And so from the very first magazine article I ever I ever wrote, you know, I remember sitting there afterwards with, in a meeting with my editor, who I'm trying to impress because I'd like more work from him and the, the, the libel lawyer who um, wants to make sure that we can we can support every single sentence in that article and the magazine's fact checker who is uh, you know who has independently looked at everything I've said so you know my training very early on as a journalist is you know you have to be very very careful and you have to be super curious to make sure that you understand what's really going on because there are consequences if you get things wrong. And that's not to say that I never make mistakes. I'm human like everyone else. But um, my training um, was was to be very careful 
and and do a very good job of research because it matters. It matters that you don't want to be um, smearing people um, unjustly, saying things about them that aren't true. And it matters because you know the, the, we need we need accurate information. And and there's a lot of information out there, and most of what most of us think is true turns out not to be. So you know, um, I've always put a big emphasis on let's double check this before we say it out loud. That's such an important point you make because I feel like there's there's some very good journalists like yourself that seem to be more few and far between. And there's so much, like you said, there's so much information out there, and people have a hard time sifting through trying to figure out um, what's what's important and what's true. And so then when you have these Facebook fact checkers and all this other stuff, which is really, <laughs> I find problematic in many different ways, but uh, I'm grateful that there, are, that there are journalists like yourself who, who are trying to do the right thing and to be honest and fair in how um, stories are researched and presented because like you said it's important to be careful and that it matters this matters yes yes so so how did you come to write the delinquent teenager then well um i had um at a certain point left journalism i had been on the staff of the national post and i was part of the, the team that launched the national post which was very exciting here in canada to get a brand new national newspaper and um, I worked for them for three years, and then the paper was sold. And at that point, I think about a third of us um, got pink slips because they were, you know, they had to cut some costs. Um, and at that point, I sort of said to myself, well, I've worked for magazines. I've worked for newspapers. I've written a book. Um, and I've done kind of – I've been there, done that. I've, I've done a lot of things in journalism. I'm going to just – um, step away and do some other things with my life. And, um, and I took about seven years off. Um, and I started, um, you know, thinking about climate change just because I was reading uh, magazines like The Economist. And it seemed every time I, I, I read an article, there would be climate change talked about, uh, you know, mentioned in the article, even if it was like, uh, not not germane um, to to the discussion, and I started to feel like I was getting this steady drumbeat of um, propaganda that 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 you know a magazine whose writing I really respected at that time um, was just constantly 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 bringing up climate change, and it's all going to be worse because of climate change. And I remember, you know, at some point the 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 red flag went up, and I just thought this is not thoughtful. Um, quite the opposite. This just seems like very shallow analysis. It seems um, very jingoistic. Um, it does not, um, you know, I, I'm I'm getting some weird vibes. So I started just. Um, very privately, do starting to do some very basic research about climate change, and I soon realized that much of what we had been told about this this um, organization that is a UN body called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, practically everything that we had been told about it by mainstream journalists um, actually turned out to be do highly questionable. 
um, and often downright wrong. And, um, and so then I, you know, then, then, you know, my, my detective instincts, I suppose, kicked in. Um, and I spent about a year, um, watching, you know, um, documentaries like, um, Al Gore's, uh, you know, film, um, uh, Inconvenient Truth and yeah. reading books, reading books by environmentalists who were concerned about climate change and then by skeptics who were saying, well, you know, I'm not sure that there's anything to get excited about. So I spent about a year very informally and on my, my own time and no one's paying me to do this, just educating myself. And then, um, and then I started blogging and I ended up writing this book about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, because I just thought, you know, the public has a right to know that this story is bigger than what they are hearing in the mainstream media. So, uh, first, I, I just want to say you sound an awful lot like a good historian. <laughs> Go thank dig, you, thank you. Digging through things and, and trying to come up with a bigger picture and understand, you know, that there's other things going on. I know that when I was doing my research on the the Diefenbaker and Pearson days and their relationship with the United States in energy, that the media would have one report. And, and like you said, it, it, it's the surface report, and it kind of gives you a certain context or whatever. But when you start digging down into the weeds and you see the documents behind the scenes and what's actually going on, it's very different. It, I mean, there's... There's those elements of truth in the in the media stories that you have to pick out, but they're not always what they see. And there's more underneath. And so I was I'm very grateful to hear you speak like that. And maybe it's just because I'm an historian and I think, wow, someone else is is approaching it in a in a similar manner. Um, so with the book, The Delinquent Teenager, could you just give um, the listeners uh, a brief rundown of what you found with the IPCC? Sure. So one of the things is that, you know, we have been told for more than 20 years by the media who was that, and the, and journalists were just basically taking the press release issued by the IPCC and rewriting it a bit and rather than double-checking any, fact-checking any of this. Um, so we have been told that the IPCC is the world's top scientist. So we must listen to the IPCC report because these are the world's top scientists and, and, and they know what they're talking about. And you wouldn't want to be questioning the world's top scientists. Who are you anyway? Um, so it turns out that that's not the case at all. That is not the case at all. The IPCC is, um, is, an, is a government um, an intergovernmental organization. An intergovernmental means between two or more governments. And it, the IPCC is part of the United Nations structure. It was started by two United Nations organizations, the uh, World Meteorological Organization and the, um, the, um, the UN's um, uh, Environmental Agency. So it's been started by two UN organizations. It's very much a part of the UN structure. And what happens is that the IPCC invites governments, not science academies, governments to nominate scientists 
to work on the next IPCC report. And now we have, you know, we have numerous reports. They just, they're a report writing factory. That's what the IPCC is. So it's governments who nominate scientists. And then the IPCC looks at all of these CVs and says, well, you know, we really need a few people from um, this continent to be working on that chapter. And we need, we need a couple of women to make it look diverse. And the IPCC makes makes its selection uh, for who will be writing um, about which topic based on these non-scientific considerations, because the UN is a political organization and it's very concerned with geopolitical matters and, and you know, um, looking representative. So, so governments nominate scientists. The, it, the, the scientists are chosen via an, a political process, and then they write these reports. Um, well, they're not the world's top scientists. It, you know, some of them have, um, have um, you know, a wonderful um, uh, record and uh, published record, and they have, uh, they have a wonderful reputation. But a lot of these people, as it turns out, um, are not particularly prominent scientists, but uh, as I say, they have been chosen because they fill a diversity checkbox. Um, and um, it turned out that many of the people, in fact, who were lead authors um, on for the IPCC turned out to be very young. I found these these people in their 20s, many of whom were still working on their PhDs, and they were lead authors making very important um, judgment calls on, on behalf of the IPCC. So we had the problem that these are not the top scientists, world's top scientists. That's just, that is the real mischaracterization of, of what goes on at the IPCC. And then we had the ridiculous um, situation where the chairman of the IPCC um, a, a man named Regenda Pachori, who has, uh, who is no longer with us, he has passed on, but he was the chairman for more than a decade and he went around constantly telling everyone in the media when he made speeches, um, that, you know, the, the IPCC reports are based only on peer reviewed <laughs> research. So there was, you know, so you can trust it. There's this, we, 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 we have this uh, quality, um, um, you know, we're, we're looking at quality research and therefore our conclusions about um, what's going on with climate change are reliable. Well, it turns out that in fact, I think when we, um, I'm trying to remember now, I, I organized, um, um, a group of volunteers from around the world to actually go through and look at the references at the back of each IPCC chapter at that time. And we found, I think, overall, that there was something like a third of the documents that were cited by the IPCC were, in fact, not peer-reviewed journal articles at all. Some of them were press releases. Some of them were magazine articles. Some of them were newspaper articles. Some of them were, um, you know, working papers. Um, so, so it was a total lie. It was a total lie that everything we consider and everything we cite has been published in a peer-reviewed journal. 
Um, and then, you know, so, so here, those are just two examples of things that the media told us. And when, when, um, when those declarations were made by leaders of the IPCC, the media just printed those declarations, didn't bother to double check them. And, um, and, you know, there was a long list of other issues, but th- th- those are two kind of, um, you know, good examples of, of it's simply not the case. What you have told us about this organization is simply not true. And it, it's, and it's, so it's a failure of the media, but it's also a failure of the organization. If you have an organization that can't be bothered to describe itself accurately, <laughs> that's a big fail. That is a huge fail. So why would you trust anything they say if they are misleading you systematically over a period of years about how they, what, how they do their work and who is involved in their work. Well, uh, I was looking um, just at my notes from your book and you listed 78 personnel who were also of the IPCC, who were also members of the World Wildlife Fund. And that uh, like there is all these you said 100 percent of the chapters in working group two, all 20 of them included at least one. WWF affiliated scientist. Like that, that's, that's right. appalling that the activists are part of this supposedly scientific group. Um, and they're, you know, I've been on committees and you get a persuasive person and they can sway other people. So if they're, you get a very persuasive WWF person, um, on, on a panel that's, that's doing a chapter. And it, it skews the, um, the viewpoint. Absolutely. There is the potential for that, for sure. And I think, you know, I think what's, um, what I found very interesting was that these were people who had some publicly stated affiliation with the, with the World Wildlife Fund. And the World Wildlife Fund has a very particular agenda, okay? Yeah. They... They make money, they raise money by, by raising alarm. So if, if they aren't exaggerating, if they aren't constantly trying to scare us, well, their, their, their resources, their fundraising, um, dries up. So they have an agenda. And so if you're telling the world these are the top scientists writing a scientific report, you cannot have, uh, dozens and dozens of people whose connection to an activist organization with an agenda to taking part it's not because it's not a neutral scientific um, exercise anymore and and you know it was it was relatively easy for me to find those declared um, alliances and and I expect that if someone had more time and energy than I do that you would find far more um alignments with with um with activist organizations under the surface that aren't necessarily publicized so you have a system of of evaluating because what the what the IPCC does is it basically does a glorified literature review it looks at the published research and then it draws conclusions so it is very, very important that the people making an assessment of the scientific literature are not coming with these huge agendas, um, because, of course, that's going to skew the entire process. And, and the IPCC made no 
um, efforts whatsoever to ensure that there weren't those kinds of conflicts of interest. They just, you know, and then and then there was um, an, uh, an investigation, and the um, the body doing the investigation said, you know, we really think you should start paying attention to conflict of interest, and they kind of did some window dressing around that. But but this is a this is a a, a body that is making a de- decisions and evaluations and writing reports that have been hugely in- influential. And they just didn't even think conflict of interest was something that they had to think about. So this is the level of professionalism or lack of it that um, that that is producing these incredibly influential reports. It's a problem. It's a real problem. Well, one of the interesting things about what you say is how there's these activist groups who then become affiliated with a university. So then they get to hold the university credential, even though they are actually an activist organization. And there's at least two or three of those in the UK, and I don't want to name them. Um, But then they're part of the IPCC function. They also sometimes double their time advising the European Union on their uh, environmental and climate change policies. And there's a bit of an incestuous networking going on. So you'll have certain individuals from certain activist groups who are affiliated with the university who then go on to an expert panel um, at, at another government level who then get put onto some peer review board. <laughs> and, and then they're, they're like reviewing each other's stuff and saying how amazing it is. And, and like you point out, this whole idea of peer review one, if it does happen, it's probably not objective. And two, it's not always happening. So like you said, you mentioned there were different press releases or working papers or these other things. And um, it, it's, it's rather frightening how it's, it's all this sort of interconnectedness of, how, of pushing a certain agenda and idea. And I noticed that one of the things that you pointed out in your book, your your ultimate conclusion was, we should disband the thing. We should get rid of it altogether. Yes, and you know, and that is my opinion. Um, and you know, there are other very smart people who are um, very um, careful thinkers who who argue the opposite. Um, you know, Roger Pilkey Jr., who is um, an expert on, um, he's a professor at, at uh, University of Colorado Boulder. Um, He's an expert in um, natural disasters, and he's been very critical of the IPCC. Um, but he thinks that there would there is a need for such a body, and um, you know, so um, so I think it should be disbanded because I think it's an enormous waste of of resources and of good brains because the scientists who who get nominated to work on these reports. They spend a lot of their time and a lot of their brain power writing them. And at this point, I think they're, um, they're repetitive. They're pointless. Their only purpose is to get some media attention. Um, you know, this year again, before the next, 
um, COP meeting, which happens every single year. And the messages are always the same. You know, it's an alarm. Um, you know, there's no time to waste. We're, 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 you know, we're all going to die. Um, so, um, I think it's an immense waste of time and resources and brain power. Um, so, um, and, and, at this point, having watched this organization now for the better part of a decade, I think, um, you know, I've come to a broader conclusion, and that's that it's part of the United Nations structure. And after a decade of looking at this, I have lost all my naivety about the United Nations. And I just think the United Nations is a very negative um uh, a force in our world. I think it's a, it's very undemocratic. Okay. The, there are all of these spokespeople for the United Nations who, who fill all of these positions that sound very impressive. Well, there is no way that the public has any, um, influence over these people. We didn't elect them. They were appointed. We have no way of getting rid of them if they um, pursue policies that are against the interests of the public interest, against against you know the interests of the citizens of the world. It's undemocratic. We have they're they're a bureaucracy of untouchables, um, and they're also you know, there's good evidence that they're incompetent as well. They're very good at writing reports. But if you look at how the UN um, dealt with the Haiti um, earthquake 10 years yeah. ago, they, it, it, they, they may, they were, the UN was well established in Haiti before the earthquake. And, and then, in fact, when the earthquake happened, the UN lost a, a number of personnel, which was very tragic. But the point is, they had a long history in Haiti. And they were there on the ground and should have understood the Haitian situation and should have been able to help that country rebuild. And in fact, the rebuilding was, it was a disaster. And even worse, the UN peacekeepers, um, brought cholera to Haiti, and Haiti has <laughs> never experienced cholera before. So they're trying to recover from a horrendous natural disaster, and then they get this this horrible disease sweeping through the country, and 10,000 deaths later, and horrible sickness and suffering later, and the the UN is 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 stonewalling. It's pretending it doesn't have responsibility. It finally gets around to apologizing, except that it doesn't actually acknowledge that it was responsible for, <laughs> for the cholera. You know, so in the real world, when you see the UN in action, it is not impressive at all. Um, so I think we, the UN is just this very undemocratic, very unaccountable group of people who all lean far left. They have a particular worldview, and um, and I think the less we pay attention to these people, the better. And and the climate, the IPCC is part of the UN structure. So I've got to the point now where you know I do not make um, decisions rashly. I do not write organizations off rashly. But after ten years of watching them, this is my conclusion: the the less we pay attention to the UN, the better. The less we allow the UN to have any influence over our lives, the better off everyone's going to be. So how does that then 
tie into our current situation in Canada where you have our Prime Minister wanting to adopt the UN Declaration on um, Aboriginal issues and then also signing on to the Paris Agreement. So, you know, this year is the the COP26 in Glasgow, and they're all saying that this is the big one. If we don't do something in in November, the world's going to come to an end and all that, you know, the usual. <laughs> but so, you know, I agree with you that the UN is 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 a very corrupt institution that, you know, it's like everything it touches goes black and terrible. Um, but yet Canada is tied in with it. And so how... How do we extricate ourselves? And, and why is there so little pushback about the UN um, as a negative force in the world and not a positive force? Well, you know, how do we extricate ourselves? That is a tricky question that, uh, you know, that's uh, the above my pay grade. Um, I think, I think though it starts with ordinary people, um, you know, if we can spend, you know, there are a lot of things we have to think about in, in this world. And, you know, we have kids and we have aging parents and we have lots of responsibilities. Um, but, you know, starting to think about the UN in just a little less of a naive way and not, um, and, and pushing back a little bit. So, you know, if we have an opportunity to speak to a candidate who is not on our door looking for our vote and right now here in Canada we are um, 10 days from a federal election and and that's going on um, you know the the opportunity is to say by the way I want to be ruled by rule laws that we Canadians make I do not want you as a politician to be taking your cue from the United Nations because it is, it is not democratic and it is not accountable. And I think we need to get out of our UN treaties. Some of those treaties have a process for um, extricating ourselves. So, you know, um, we need we need to start talking about this as a community. And, you know, I'm not, um, I, I don't have any illusions. I think it's something that does, most people don't think so I think getting to that point is is going to be some involve some hard work. Yes, I think so. Especially when I think of how our the Canadian system for governing um, in in developing policy ideas and and recommendations and so on has has taken a page out of not just the UN but also the EU. So I noticed with Trudeau, there's so many expert panels that are supposedly providing government advice. And I was thinking, why do we have such a huge bureaucracy and that's supposed to be able to do these things, and yet he has to farm out all of the, the different uh, recommendation advisory bodies and so on. There's the net zero one, there's an agriculture one, there's a finance one. Um, there's so many. And for, for what purpose? For what purpose? So we... I don't know. It's a little bit it's a little bit frustrating to see how our government in Canada is emulating the this sort of um, how the U.N. is structured, how the EU does stuff. And that's not necessarily a good thing, because, as you point out, it's is fundamentally anti-democratic. Now, sure, you can fire the people on the advisory panel afterwards. You don't have to listen to what they say. But it seems to me that the people who are appointed to these advisory panels are of a certain viewpoint and they they're there to produce 
um, the recommendations the government wants, that it's not necessarily objective. I think that's I think that's very much the case. And um, and yes. And, you know, politicians like to be able to point somewhere else and say, we're doing this because the IPCC says it's important and we must do it. You know, they don't, they're not interested in taking responsibility. They want to um, blame it on someone else. But also what, you know, the whole IPCC, in my view now is about politicians dressing up they, what they want to do in, 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 a, in a lab coat and pretending it's science, okay? So right, yeah. we know by now that politicians aren't trustworthy. So what they try to do is get a scientific body to write a report that says we should do these 10 things that the politicians really thought we should be doing anyway. And rather than saying, oh, it's not us saying it, look, it's, this science says so. Yeah, um, or the experts say yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, and we have this really we've come to this very unfortunate place, I think, globally, where the um, there is a big divide between ordinary people who live their lives and then the, um, you know, the for want of a better term, the elite. So these politicians go and they hobnob with each other. Uh, of like-minded um, persuasion in places like Davos and, and innumerable UN events. And they congratulate each other and they reinforce each other's prejudices and worldview. And they just don't understand why the rest of the world doesn't see things the way they do. And they have very little contact with ordinary people who are just trying to get by and who are, um, you know, struggling um, on with, with health issues or, or, you know, with economic issues, um, you know, if they have a disabled child, there, there, is, there are the elites and they, they hobnob with each other and they reinforce each other. And, they, and so the global elites ha- have this worldview and this experience of the world that is very different from, from the rest of us, and I don't know what we do about that. I, I you know, it's, it's. I think it's very harmful. Um, I think it's democratic, um, and and it's new. It's new. I, I think partly, you know, our um, um, our technology has, you know, technology is good and bad. And one of the things it has, um, it really reinforces people's. Um, prejudices in a particular direction. That's so true, especially on social media and YouTube or whatever, where all, all the AI does is keep giving you back similar things that, that it thinks you like. And how is that yeah. useful in a democratic society when you need to hear alternate viewpoints? And then you have the tech giants that censor alternate viewpoints that, that go beyond, you know, against whatever they believe people ought to be believing or thinking. And with the new um, free speech laws and the Internet governance laws that they want to bring in into Canada, uh, that's quite frightening that there would be an even greater ossification of viewpoint, which is the dream of every authoritarian regime out there, like like China, and where they censor 
the internet and everything. And I see us going down that path and that's, that's not a good thing. And it, and it also comes back to this whole idea of stakeholders because one of the things that, that the IPCC people sometimes talk about is that while we have to include the WWF or Greenpeace or Natural Resources Defense Council because they're stakeholders and the stakeholders ought to have a say in these things. It's like, well, what about the average guy? Isn't he a stakeholder? What about the person paying their taxes? Are they not stakeholders? So when you get this whole idea of stakeholders, um, I think that's very problematic and undemocratic because who's who's electing those particular stakeholders that, that they're uh, – deigning to include in in their meetings. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. The, um, you know, the IPCC goes through this very, very strange thing, um, exercise um, where the scientists write the summary of a report. And the summary is a short 20 or 30 pages of a, of a report that is hundreds of pages. And then all of the representatives, political representatives from various countries gather together in a large room and those representatives then rewrite the draft that the scientists have written. And it's very interesting to notice that if you are a representative of a green group, you get to participate. Well, you don't participate, pardon me. You get to observe. You get to be in that room, in that large meeting, and you get to watch what's going on. And of course, you get to at least unofficially lobby <laughs> the people in that room. But journalists who, you know, let's, let's for a moment give, let's be charitable and say that journalists are the representatives of the public. <laughs> um, they're the only potential representatives of the public. Um, journalists are barred from watching that process. So the green groups get an in at the IPCC to watch what is a very messy, very naked political process where the words of scientists are rewritten by politicians. The, the green groups get to be on the periphery, at least of that, but the journalists are locked out. The public is not allowed to see that. So what does that tell us? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite shocking. Um, so but, the, the, the ordinary person has no representation, right? Right. It could be the activist groups do, but the average person doesn't. And that's right. Like, as you say, the, the reports are huge. I mean, six, seven hundred pages. And, you know, oh, there's that's just, just one. That's just one. Working that's group just one hundred. working group. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. how, you know, there's so many working groups and, and then they have to try and summarize this stuff. And, you know, what gets reported is designed for mass consumption. It removes the nuance, like you say. And then. I think of these new organizations like Covering Climate Now, Climate Central, um, even the Canadian Association of Journalists. Have all, they've all issued these various statements outlining and calling for acceptable journalistic climate activism because there's a climate emergency. And so, therefore, they don't have to report on any studies that could be skeptical because it's a climate emergency. So what's your view um, of this type of journalism. Is it journalism? 
No, it's not anymore. It's become activism. And, and, you know, this has been going on for quite a while. And, but now the journalist organizations are being very overt about it. They're yeah. putting it down, you know, on paper so everyone can see it. And before it was just, you know, you would try to pitch a story that was critical to your editor and your editor would say, Oh, let's not go there. That sounds too complicated. You know, it was going on before where journalists, first of all, wouldn't think it was a story. No one thought before before I did it in a systematic way. No one thought it was worthwhile actually fact-checking it. the press releases from the IPCC. No one thought, well, let's go see if it's really all based on peer-reviewed literature. No one had done that, um, you know, and and the organization had been around for, dec- for well over a decade at that point. Um, so it's not journalism. It is activism, and that's the problem we have right now with journalism. I think if we had pushed back, if society had pushed back uh, when this was going on with the climate debate, maybe we would not be in the position we are on a broader um, scale now. Because because really, right now, what we're seeing with the COVID pandemic is you can't believe the journalists. You just can't believe anything they say, because they are, they are repeating the press releases and the talking points of the government. And there is no contrary analysis. Um, or, you know, almost none, uh, appearing, um, in, in very, very reputable mainstream, um, uh, news outlets now. It's just, it's, there is one perspective and one perspective only. Um, yeah. so journal, journalism is just, um, it has really, really, um, the standards, I don't know where they've gone, but they have pretty much wholly disappeared now. Well, I think of back, in 2009 with the climate gate scandal and no one remembers it now and it went through this supposed um, investigation in the UK which was a joke an absolute joke and they just kind of what they did is they they moved anybody who was skeptical and put them on the side and so a person can go to climate depot or they can go to what's up with that or um any of the other handful of skeptical sort of websites or, you know, what, what I call real scientists doing their thing. Um, but they're, they're a small number. They, they're in their own little corner echo chamber and, and they're not allowed to participate in the discussion anymore, really. That's right. And, you know, um, climate scientists were being canceled. A decade ago, right? Yeah, yeah. More than a decade ago. And, 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 you know, um, so, and if, if we as a society had said that's not right, that's not appropriate, we need a wide, uh, variety of, of diverse views in order to make smart decisions, then, um, you know, maybe the canceling that's going on in all kinds of other areas now, um, would not have happened. I don't know, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, anyone and and, you know, however, if we try to be optimistic, um, I think a lot of people um, currently are being red pilled. They're looking at um, what's going on with in current in the current climate with COVID and with some other issues and with people being canceled left, right and center on uh, YouTube. And they're they're sort of the light bulb is going on and they're saying, holy cow. And, and, and here's people like you and me saying, well, you know, this has actually been going on for a long time. Once you see this now, once you understand, you need to appreciate that this has been going on within the climate debate 
for more than a decade. So lots of what you think you know about the climate issue has been horribly skewed because these people have been cancelled for years and years and years. Yeah, exactly. And I look at the universities and how, oh my gosh, our, even when I was in grad school, you could see that like in the history departments, if you were an activist historian, you got all the funding, you got all the publications, you got all the attention in the department, you got the promotions and everything. And if you wanted to just plug away and do what I would call real research and try to understand the bigger picture of things and and how things ha- have worked in the past and, and do it on the past's terms, not imposing some presentist viewpoint that's ahistorical onto the past, um, then you were sidelined and your grades were maybe not be so high. Um, I didn't face that, but others did for sure. You wouldn't get published or you'd only get published a few things and you would only get small grants, but not the big ones. And, you know, this, this kind of thing has been going on for a very long time in academia. And I think it's got to this, this, um, saturation point where, Almost almost every department in the social sciences and humanities is skewed and no longer do the appropriate level of inquiry that is supposed to be scholarship and, and considered academic. I, I, I see very few academics nowadays and lots of activists. And if you're a young person who's going through, it's very difficult. You, you can't push back. If you push back, you fail. And... In the meantime, if you if you're just going along to get your degree, are you losing something in that process? You know, it's just it's not a good situation, I think, at the universities. No, it's dreadful. It's just dreadful. And, you know, I come from a working class background. My father was an auto mechanic and my mother didn't finish high school. She dropped out in grade 10. So I do not come from um uh, a family background where university was, you, it was assumed you were going to university. The fact that I went to the University of Toronto, you know, considered um, Canada's um, um, perhaps most prestigious university and got a degree was, um, was a really big deal. And I, um, you know, I had to work very hard to make that happen. I paid most of um, the bills myself um, because my my parents had some young younger, uh, you know, there were younger siblings at home. They didn't have that kind of money. Um, I was very proud of the fact that I went to university and I was a great ambassador um, to uh, other other young people saying, yeah, you know, it's go to university. It's a great experience. And now, um, a few decades on, I have changed my mind. And I have young people coming to me or I have friends who say, um, you know, my, my, my daughter would like to um, be a journalist. Would you mind talking to her? And, you know, or she's thinking of going to university. Would you mind giving her some advice? And I don't want to stomp on the dreams of any young person. But honestly, right now, I say things like, um, you know, Really, you should think about a trade, honestly. And there is one lovely young woman in my circle at the moment who, who has signed on to be an electrician. And she's already done her first uh, segment of schooling and is now looking for an apprenticeship. And, and I'm saying to her, honey, you are going to always 
be popular with your friends because you have a skill that is really useful <laughs> in the real world and your opportunities are immense. You can work for someone at a certain point, you'll have enough hours and you'll be able to open your own business if you want. You can, you, you can teach if that's, um, you know, if you feel, um, you'd like to go in that direction. Sorry, I'm just stopping for a second while this noise goes by. <laughs> but um, I think you're so, absolutely so you right have to so many, that. Yeah. Yeah, you have so many um, real world, and, and we are always going to need electricians, no matter, you know, if people who work in fast food get replaced by robots, um, we're always going to need electricians. Um, so... Um, you know, I, I'm, I find myself encouraging young people to go work in the trades when, you know, I have been for many years a proponent of university education because university education now I'm starting to feel is it's either indoctrinating um, young people with some very, very questionable and I think antisocial um, ideas that are not going to help them be uh, productive and happy human beings. It's either indoctrinating them or it's um, just giving them um, a useless piece of paper, which doesn't, won't necessarily help them get a job, but they've now got this huge student loan that they have to pay back and, and, and it will take them a, a long time and it will end up being quite a hardship for them to pay back that student loan. And what did they get in exchange? So, you know, and, and there are, there are full tenured professors now who are saying, don't send your kids to university. It is a waste of their time and a waste of your money. Um, we, that's where we are now because of what's gone on and, and exactly the situation you're talking about that you, yeah. that you saw. Yeah. So, um, how can people stand up to this and what role do you think journalists play in being champions of free speech? Is it too idealistic to believe that journalists, mere mortals, <laughs> can be champions of free speech today? What would that look like? Um, you know, I am not sure. I'm really not sure. I think we. It is, a, it is the job of every single one of us to be champions of free speech because it's, it's disappearing fast. It really is. Um, we need to be champions of free speech. We need to be champions of free of, of, of choice as well. Um, and um, it's not, you know, journalists have 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 I think already demonstrated that they are um, pretty pathetic at that. And and which is so strange because without free speech, how do you how do you practice being a journalist? It's just you you need it as a to exist as a bedrock upon which you build journalism. And the idea that so many journalists don't seem to understand that anymore is, is quite astonishing to me. Um, but, you know, we all have to advocate free speech, and I think we all have to make a, a, a um, an effort to expose ourselves to a wide number of perspectives. Don't just turn on one television station. Um, you know, don't just read one newspaper. Deliberately go out there and expose yourself to media outlets that that have a different point of view. And you're not going to agree with everyone. That's yeah. not the point. The point is to expose yourself to different ways of of um, 
of looking at a, at an issue to different perspectives. Yeah, for sure. To educate yourself. That's about educating yourself, right? <laughs> and, yes. and I think we, I think we're at a, a turning point. So right now on my blog, um, I am doing this little film festival where I'm just putting up a, a, a bit of video every day um, with different people talking about um, COVID vaccines um, from perspectives that you're not hearing about in the, in the media. And the interesting thing is how many of those videos are being shut, are being deleted by YouTube. So a few days ago, I posted a video that is made by the Irish Council for Human Rights, the Irish Council for Human Rights, a bunch of lawyers, and their video got and 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 the video is of a number of doctors, six or seven doctors, all of whom have been doctors for decades, just giving a little um, you know, uh, exposition about what their concerns are with COVID vaccines in children. So this is, these are lawyers and these are doctors and everyone here is very reputable and very experienced. And YouTube took down the video in a matter of hours. Wow. Pardon me. Pardon me. If the Irish Council on Human Rights cannot post a video on YouTube, what does that tell us about free speech and how, um, what we see is being tightly controlled? Wow. That, I knew they were pulling stuff down, but like really the, the the Irish Council of Human Rights is not allowed to post stuff about COVID on, on YouTube. That's right. That's right. And we've had all kinds of doctors and you know including um you know there's a doctor in in Japan who um who discovered this drug uh, called ivermectin and he won the Nobel Prize for discovering this medication. It was the 2015 Nobel Prize in Medicine, a real Nobel Prize in Medicine. And he had a speech on YouTube where he was talking about how ivermectin is useful treating COVID. And they took it down. They took, YouTube took down this video of a Nobel laureate talking about his specialty, talking about the medication, the drug that he won the Nobel Prize for. Oh, my gosh. It's insanity. Well, yeah. And so I think it's a red pill moment. I think once the the average person realizes this, and I think anyone who's on Facebook is already getting there because, you know, Facebook is putting up all these ridiculous warnings. If you say something that is, you know, remotely off, off narrative. And, and ordinary people are looking at that and saying, what, what? Well, maybe this is, um, this is a really terrible, um, time, but we have to live through it for, for enough normal, ordinary people to kind of, you know, the light bulb goes on and they realize YouTube is the enemy. Governments are the enemy. Journalists are the enemy because no one is actually prepared stand up for free speech and to allow us as citizens to hear a range of, of viewpoints and to make up our own mind what we think. So that's a really good segue into the last two points I wanted to talk to you about. One is the the climate assemblies. Now, we had one in the UK um, last year. It was it started before COVID and then it went online during COVID and everything. And I 
tortured myself and watched the videos of the assemblies taking place. And in case people don't know what a climate assembly is, is um, the activists really wanted to have the population, the public, be involved in climate decisions. So they randomly sent out invitations, apparently by postcode. But then, once they got the replies in, they would sort it, and they called it sortition. So they would do a poll, how many people feel strongly about climate change or whatever, a general national poll or whatever, and then they would take a percentage of the responses they got back and align them with whatever percentage um, response they got on the polls about people's interest in climate change. So they would... They would supposedly be random, but then they would select from those random people um, to participate in this assembly. And so you're thinking, okay, an assembly, so the people are going to get together and talk about stuff. Well, no. Then they have a, a, a list, a, a group of experts who then educate these people on the weekends um, about the different climate issues. And so if you if you look at who they chose to be the experts. They're all of one opinion. They're all from one side of the political spectrum. And they all have a very specific viewpoint that we have to be net zero by 2050, that we have the technology to do it. It'll be an easy transition, no problem. And so in watching these videos, I saw people raise concerns. And then the person would come over and quietly say, well, let's go talk about this over here. And they take the person aside. And the conversation would keep going of whatever they're being indoctrinated about. Then they would bring the person back and then they would ask them, so what do you think now? Oh, yeah, I agree now. And it was just the most egregious exercise in undemocratic indoctrination I've ever seen. And then at the end of it, they provide this report to government about what their consensus is. Of course, consensus. So I. <laughs> What do you think of these climate assemblies? Well, I think they're 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 ridiculous, and 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 I agree with everything that you just said. Yes, you're you're pretending that this is what the public thinks, except that it's you know it's it, 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 there is a parallel to how the IPCC operates. You know, when you're told it's the world's top scientists and this is what they think about climate change, you think that they all sit down and and have a discussion. Except the IPCC already has this um, this agenda that says, well, you're we want you to write about this and we want you to talk about this and we want you to talk about that and you can't the scientists cannot talk about anything that's not on the list already right and yeah. um and even when the scientists come back and they say well you know there's not really much evidence to address that well it doesn't matter we have to have a paragraph about that so say something is how the ipc sees works and then you know and then you're told oh this is what scientists think well the, the whole process has been managed and massaged and manipulated by the ipc bureaucrats and that's that's exactly what's gone on with these citizen assemblies and you know it's all it's 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 all constructed um and you know i think my assessment of the climate assembly is, is it's just a glorified focus group okay so when you do polling my husband worked in polling for for a couple decades and you can you can do two kinds of polling you can call up random people and ask them for their opinions or you can get 
you know, a bunch of people in a room and have a group discussion about what, what they think. And there, there are, there are good reasons if you are a cereal manufacturer and you're trying to figure out what people think of your product to do that kind of, of, to do that kind of, um, exercise because you can, you can get, maybe there's some insights that will come out from the group discussion that you wouldn't, um, necessarily become aware of any other way. But it's it's a focus group. A focus group is not representative. A focus group is these are the opinions of these particular people in this room on this evening. They don't necessarily apply to the rest of the population. So what the, you know, what the climate uh, assemblies are is a big focus group. But then, as you say, they, they, they go to the extra step of, um, of, of, you know, coaching and indoctrinating to make sure that the exercise comes to a preordained Conclusion, you know, yeah. it's it, it's total nonsense that that anyone takes this seriously is is appalling. That taxpayers' money are, are is being used for this is appalling, you know. It's and it, it is a, a um, indication of just how big the gap is between ordinary people who are living their lives with their own problems and the political uh, people who are trying to say that climate change is the most important thing in the world. <laughs> you know, that's just not what ordinary people think. So yeah. they are trying to to um, invent these ways of, 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 of suggesting that the people really care. This is what the people really think when, when we all know it's, 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 it's all nonsense. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about, um, uh, for example, Extinction Rebellion. They're really big here in the UK, or they were, but they've fallen out of favor. And for the first two weeks, the last week of August, first week of September, they had two weeks of action in London where they were trying to shut things down and whatnot. And before when they did this, they got front page coverage all the time. Oh, look at the protesters. Oh, look at this. They really care and so on and so forth. This year, there was almost no coverage at all of their two weeks of action, which is, to me, very telling. I was thinking, why has the media suddenly turned on Extinction Rebellion? Had, was Did their uh, publicity stunts get out of hand? Did they... Um, no, they're not useful right now. I, I wasn't quite sure because I, I thought that coverage switch was very interesting because they've been fueling this whole everybody cares about climate change, you know. But in, when you read comments in the news, uh, whenever these things happen, the comments are like, what a load of rubbish. I don't care. Why are they pushing this? You know, um, and the reaction to the climate assembly report in the UK was really, really lukewarm, cold. People were like, what was that? Why did you do that? We don't care. So I, it's mm -hmm. interesting how they do that. Very interesting, and and you're right. And you 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 know you you you've shown a spotlight on some very uh, a very important idea, and that is the media um, has immense power, and unfortunately, the media is unaccountable to um, the public, and the media decides whether something happened or not. You know, um, and yeah. if, you know, it, this, it, you're suggesting that this, a similar campaign um, by Extinction Rebellion two years in a row gets um, opposite 
uh, media response. And, you know, part of what the media does is it documents our history. Yeah. It documents um, what's going on out there. And if the media decides to ignore you and pretend you don't exist, it's very difficult to convince politicians that you are worth paying attention to. Mm-hmm. So we have we have an accountability problem with the media. And, you know, it's uh, I think it's it's because it's it's come into focus. I think a lot of us are seeing that very clearly right now. But, you know, um, I um, was reading um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's um, autobiography um, recently, and one of the reasons I picked it up was because he had this ongoing feud with the media. And he was a media critic, and he was worried about uh, an unaccountable media back in the 70s. Um, And so I thought, you know, that would give me a very interesting perspective on on this whole issue, which is where, you know, and and he talks about, hey, there's this Italian newspaper that has just published an interview, quote unquote, with me, when I'm I'm saying all kinds of, uh, you know, outrageous things in that interview. And he says, the interview never happened. I never spoke to that person. We, there was no, I gave no interview to that, that journalist or that publication. But now here it is out there in the world and people think I've said these things. And so even back then he was saying, because he's coming from the Soviet Union where everything is controlled and he comes out into the West because he's been exiled and he's saying, well, but how could this be? How could that be right? That people would just make up stuff and t- say that I said it and I have no recourse. I have new recourse, you know, so the concerns about media accountability actually go back many decades. But I think uh, we ha- we are at a moment now when perhaps more of us um, are 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 becoming aware. I hope so. And I think the incident with Joe Rog- Rogan recently has sort of shone a spotlight on that where, you know, he did his little video when he had COVID and what he did to get over it. And one of the things he did was take ivermectin. And then there were these smear stories all over the place saying he took horse paste and all this kind of garbage. He's like, it was prescribed by a doctor. What are they talking about? It was a tablet. And he's like, do I have to sue CNN because they keep repeating this false story? And then a, a couple of the major news organizations did a retraction, sort of, whatever that means these days. So, you know, they blare it on the front line. It gets amplified to 20 other news outlets or whatever around the world, and probably even more than that. And then the retraction, where where does that go? Does that get amplified and spread across the whole media network uh, around the world the way the original story did? I don't think so. Of course, of course. And, um, yes. Okay. So um, what I wanted to talk about next was, Net zero, because when we were, we're talking about the climate assemblies and we talk about how politicians feel like they need to manufacture the appearance of public support, manufacturing consent in some ways. I, I can't believe I'm, I'm quoting Noam Chomsky now, um, but it makes a, a lot of sense that they that they, they need to have that appearance that the public supports these ideas. And the big one now is net zero. And my sense is that the public really has no idea what net zero means, that the politicians and the media have been quite vague, sort of like um, you can keep your car. It'll just be electric. We're going to you can keep your lifestyle. We're just going to switch over how you heat your house. It'll be electric now instead. Everything will be electric. 
and there won't be many disruptions in your way of life and everything. And um, to me, there's that's the public face that they're putting out there. But there's at least another pathway that all the academics talk about under the surface. So it's kind of what we were speaking about before, where uh, on the surface, there's this um, rhetoric and narrative being put forward, but underneath is something else entirely. And what I think is the other pathway is actually zero emissions from human activity. That means zero use of any hydrocarbons for any purpose, significant degrowth, and the degrowth literature is enormous, um, that production and consumption will be shrunk through a radical change of lifestyle, attitudes, value systems, everything. And that the, this, the first pathway of this gradual transition is what's been marketed, but the second one is what they've actually agreed on in the Paris Agreement. And I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that's the case, that there's at least these two different pathways and, and people aren't getting a real sense of what net zero means? Absolutely. I don't think the average person, um, you know, has the first idea of what these these climate uh, activists and climate politicians and climate bureaucrats have um, in, uh, you know, have on their wish list for us. I don't think the the average person has any idea. And, um, you know, when normal people say, oh, we want to do something because it's good for the environment. Yeah, okay, I'm uh, I'm for that. But we're going to start to notice if, um, you know, net zero in a, in a country like Canada with harsh winters is, is just an absurd idea. Um, and, you know, you have to be very educated to think that this, <laughs> this makes sense. <laughs> you have to be overeducated in a very, very, very odd, odd manner to think that this is even possible or it makes sense. You know, we, we need, um, we need heat or we're going to freeze to death here in Canada over the winter and um, electric cars are fine except they don't work in the winter because the batteries um, don't charge properly and don't hold the charge properly so all of these fantasies of how the world is going to be if we just you know put our mind to it they are totally disconnected from real life and real people um, so I, I I find it incredibly um, um alarming and 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 disconcerting that there are so many smart educated people who actually talk about net zero and and zero emissions as if it's even has the slightest possibility of coming true of course not you know of course not we we need to to uh, heat heat our homes and we need to get to everything that makes life worth living we need to get to school which means gasoline in the school bus we need to get to the doctor's office we need to get to church we uh, you know we need to take our children to um, skating lessons or hockey games where they're playing. Everything we do requires energy. And there may be a day sometime in the future where we get that energy from um, from other sources. But right now, we are, we are societies that are based on fossil fuels. And that's not changing anytime soon, no matter how much the activists would like that to be, you know, would, would, would like it to. Um, so, you know, there there are still elections and 
politicians are held responsible when they do things that really harm people's lives. There, there is an, an accountability mechanism. It's imperfect, um, but it still exists. And any politician who tries to, um, you know, say that you can't heat your house and you can't air condition your house and you can't have a car that works in the winter because it has to be electric is just not going to survive very long. They're, they're not. They're going to be booted from office and, and good riddance to them. I hope that's the case. You know, I talk to engineers and they're, they just scoff at the net zero plans because they know that the, that the engineering realities behind this, this transition aren't possible. If, number one, there's not enough materials to do all the stuff they're talking about, whether it's paving Alberta and Saskatchewan with solar panels and windmills. There's just, there's not enough materials for that and do electric cars everywhere the way that they're saying all Western countries need to do it. So the United States is supposed to be doing net zero and the EU is doing net zero and the UK and Canada. And the there was a Dutch study back in, I think it was 2018, um, where they looked at what, what it would take to be to do net zero just for Holland. And the engineers came back and said, well, for us, we would need basically all the rare earths that are currently produced just for us wow. to, do, to do it. And the UK did um, a study and they said we would need double or triple the current rare earths just for the UK to switch cars over. So, you know, <laughs> and now we're all supposed to be doing this. There's, there's not enough materials at not to mention the, the terrible effects this will have on the environment. And, it's it's one of these inherent contradictions of the movement where they talk about they 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 want to reduce the built human environment. Well, how do solar panels and windmills help with that? Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous that you would be taking up all this space in there. They the Justin Trudeau is claiming that he's all about biodiversity and he's signing on to this biodiversity UN agreement that was supposed to be negotiated this month, but it's been postponed until the new year. Um, how, how does putting up windmills and solar panels everywhere help with biodiversity? You're killing basically the, the land underneath the, the solar panels. It becomes dead. Yes, so. yes, and I think you know in your interview with Rupert Darwals, he he made he made exactly that point, right? Is that uh, you know uh, we think of environmentalism as being wanting to preserve the environment, but the the solutions that environmentalists are pushing, like solar panels, where you just take acres and acres and acres of land and you put up these these you know these solar panels to cover it up and and just destroy everything underneath and the windmills you know which take horrendous amounts of concrete um, yeah. to build um you know all of that is 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 quite the opposite of preserving natural beauty spots and and preserving biodiversity so you know we have we have the logic here is um is is quite flawed yes well just to sort of um to conclude in some ways, uh, you in your recent talk with the Friends of Science back in December, you talked about how with the climate activists, it really doesn't matter what we do, it'll never be enough. And there's always moving goalposts. They move the goalpost all the time. And I think, for example, 
with the net zero, they're, they're talking about we have to have zero emissions and all this. So the hydrocarbon industry steps up. They do carbon capture. There's um, various technologies that are getting near to the point of um, commercialization where they can actually take the emissions and turn it into syndicate blocks. And you wouldn't need the carbon tax. We wouldn't need to get rid of fossil fuels because they could they could get rid of the emissions. And so what do the activists do? They sign these letters to Justin Trudeau and they sign them to Joe Biden saying, don't promote carbon capture. Don't provide tax breaks. Make sure that it can't happen. And also don't invest in nuclear. Well, if, if you're true about if you're really committed to net zero, wouldn't you be supporting the nuclear industry like Michael Schellenberger? Why wouldn't you? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, this is another um, example of the flawed logic. So if you really do want to go to zero emissions, I think, you know, that is, um, you know, it's not a, a, a something that I feel strongly about. But if you are an activist who feels that there should be zero emissions, well, nuclear is is the one technology that could get us there. Um, and, you know, rather than building the big nuclear plants the way we used to, you know, there's some very promising um, developments with smaller nuclear plants that would be, you know, uh, much safer from various perspectives. Um, and instead of embracing um, those solutions, which make sense and could actually work um they 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 the only energy sources the the green activists seem to support are the ones that make no sense the ones that would be that are damaging you know they're they it's very difficult um to take these people seriously well i i agree and yet they are very serious and they seem to have the ears of the people in power or uh, are, are dragging them along with this. And I don't know if you saw, there was a, an article in Nature Sustainability a couple of weeks ago, and it's called Personal Carbon Allowances Revisited. And there was uh, a researcher from Oxford named Tina Fawcett, and she's been on this bandwagon since at least 2009, pushing the idea of personal carbon trading. And in this article, she and a, a few other authors argue that people are ready for it now, especially with a COVID pass, because once you have the COVID vaccine pass, it can be transitioned as your personal carbon pass. So then all of your, the, the infrastructure will be there, the technological infrastructure, and you can build on that um, infrastructure, personal carbon trading. And so it would be much easier now with a smartphone and you have that, that um, structure already there. And people can they can move people into the right behaviors using personal carbon allowances. Well, um, it's an argument. I don't think it's going to work in the real world, um, you know, and, and I think maybe the next year will be very interesting uh, from that perspective, because I think, that, you know, the the the. Um, you know, we have this nonsense about the uh, vaccine pass that supposedly if you're vaccinated, you're not spreading uh, the disease. We know already that's not true. So what is the point of having of, of splitting society and and having this division in society? And there's a second class citizens because they're not vaccinated. We know that whether you're vaccinated or not, you can spread COVID. Um, so there's no point to this. And the only point is to try to, I suppose, 
control people and I, and I don't think it's going to go very well. The, you know, the, um, it, this is very new and I'm hearing all kinds of anecdotal stories from countries that have put this into place. It's not popular and it, I don't think it's working the way the governments expected it to work. So, um, you know, we'll see. I, I hope people, ordinary people grow a backbone and a spine and start standing up and speaking up. And I think there's lots of indications that that is going to happen. And, um, you know, we, we will, we will see who knows. We can't predict the future. I think the next year is going to be very interesting because you're right. If we can, if we can successfully implement um, vaccine passports and you have to show your papers to participate in society, then who knows how crazy things can get. But I'm, I'm still optimistic that, um, that, um, that's, that's not going to be very successful. I hope you're right. I hope that, um, communities fight back against, against this and fight back against the places that have declared a climate emergency. And there's an awful lot of towns and cities and, uh, municipalities who've done so. Um, I think of Toronto and Vancouver have signed on to the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Oh my which, God. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that one. It's, it's, um, it was started by Zepera Berman and they're out there trying to get, of course, the cities first to sign on to this. Uh, and to what end? I mean, so what is, if Toronto signs on to that, what does that mean for Toronto? Are they are they going to stop heating their buildings with with heating oil or natural gas? Are they going full electric? Like what? How does that work exactly? Besides signing on, I don't know. And and this is one of the problems. Our our politicians really do need to be shaken. And you know, again, because this is a federal election campaign right now going on here in Canada, it's like when the candidate comes to the door, ordinary people have to say, look, you are you are being elected to take care of things here in Canada in our interest. You are not being elected to sign on to all kinds of things. Your job is not to fix the climate. Your job is to represent me and balance the budget and and provide some health care and pick up the garbage, right, depending <laughs> on what level, uh, pick up the trash, depending on what level of government you, you are running. It is not your job to save the world. I am not electing you to do that. That is beyond your pay grade. So please, when you get into office, do the things that you are supposed to be doing and forget about all that crap, because that's not what I'm interested in a politician doing. I think we really, you know, and, and you're right, the, the, the activists are, are very systematically targeting the cities now. They're trying to get um, city governments to bring, you know, bring in these policies that the, the, the feds have figured out will never fly. So they're trying to get it in through the back door by influencing these city politicians. And I think we need to be telling our, our municipal elect uh, you know, um, representatives, I don't want you going to any of those conferences about climate change. That's not what you're supposed to do as my city councillor. It is not your job to, ad to address climate change. It's your job to fill the potholes, pick up the trash, you know, fund the public libraries, whatever. Um, yeah. You know, um, so 
you know, we perhaps need to be thinking a little more rigorously about what is it that our politicians are being paid to do and tell them all that other stuff that you think is sexy, saving the world, that's not your job. You go do that on your own time, not when I'm paying your salary. That's an excellent point. And and I think that's also another thing with the public needs to get more involved at the community level. And I understand that sometimes, you know, you go to these meetings or maybe you don't want to run for local office because, gosh, those meetings are quite boring. The problem is the activists are never bored at those meetings. They'll they'll make it uncomfortable and drag it out for the regular people to discourage regular people from filling the positions. But at some point, we need to take responsibility for what goes on in our local councils um, our, our local local government, because that has a, a knock-on effect for everything else. If you can't control what's going on in your little community, it's very difficult to control things that are that are that are bigger. And with respect to climate, like you said, I mean, if China's not doing anything and China has more emissions than all the other countries in the top ten combined, um, if they're not doing anything until after 2050, then what the hell are we doing? That's right. Where we, you know, are, are the possibility of us making any any difference worth noticing is 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 you know non-existent. So why are we bothering? And yeah. you know, there is there is this notion of there is only so much time, there's only so much attention, there's only so much money, and the problem is is rather than focusing on on the, their core mission, all of our politicians are off in, you know, la-la land thinking about things that don't matter to ordinary people's lives. Yeah. And we have to find, I think you're right, we have to start with municipal government and find a way to get people back focused on the things that do matter. Well, that's a good place to end it. I want to <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about these issues and um, I hope that things will be better going forward. Well, thank you very much and let's cross our fingers and um, and hope that the everyone just gets their sanity back because I'm not sure where it's going right now. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you again and I hope you have uh, an excellent weekend and um, thank you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. And let's keep in touch.